Today on the Topping Show, the Dodge Challenger is now the fastest production car in the history. The Milwaukee Bucks are being sold. Biden issues his first presidential veto. Congress introduced a 32-hour work week. Virgin Orbit is on the brink of bankruptcy. The FDIC is left with $11 billion in useless loans. And Doug DeMiro says that Ferraris should make a stick shift yet again. All of that and much, much more on The Topping Show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. Today's episode of The Topping Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN and Topping Technologies. ExpressVPN helps protect your online data, and Topping Technologies is an IT value-added resource and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. If you're a business owner or an IT leader and use some assistance, you can reach them at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Now, jumping into the business part of the podcast, the Milwaukee Bucks are being sold now, Mark Lazary will sell his stake of the Milwaukee Bucks to Jimmy and D. Haslam, who currently own the NFL Cleveland Browns. The Milwaukee Bucks are a team in the National Basketball Association, known as the NBA. I did have to check the fact, a little fact-checking. They do have an NBA team in Wisconsin. I confirm that as a thing. Now, Lazary has a 25% stake in the Milwaukee Bucks. Back in 2014, he, as the CEO of Avenue Capital Group, acquired the Bucks for about 50 $550 million. Now, he stands to make a six times, six X on his investment with the current valuation of the company or the sporting team being valued at $3.5 billion. This isn't the biggest sporting sale in history. It's it's one of the largest in recent. The Denver Broncos were sold for $4.65 billion in 2022, and New York Mets sold for $2.4 billion in 2020. And it's one of those fascinating business phenomenons where it seems hard to lose money on sporting teams these days. If you wind back the clock a couple of decades ago, you had, you know, Dallas Stars are losing money. There are a lot of these NHL teams, NFL teams that were, and even like the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban bought them on the low. And now they're worth billions. So I think Mark Cuban got them for in the mere millions. And they didn't have a winning streak. They He had to revamp the whole culture and business behind the actual sporting team. But now... They're one of the most popular teams in the United States. And it's a fascinating business phenomenon where they have multiple revenue streams, and the more you win, the more you make. And as sporting becomes more and more of a part of the American culture, it seems to be a darn good investment as all these teams continue to grow. Now, on the sad side of the business news, we have Virgin Orbit is on the brink of bankruptcy. The company is a spinoff of Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and in 2017, they spun it off. They have a 75% stake ownership in the company. They're attempting to find additional funds to avoid bankruptcy. The company unfortunately had to furlough most of their employees last week and pause operations. The company has about 750 employees in the company. They're telling people to, they should probably already be looking for new jobs. And the rumor was that someone that might be, have been interested in saving the company or investing more money into it, that rumor was going to be a sale for about $200 million, which is a little bit lower than the company's closing stock price. Their, their stock price as of today, last week is around $0.40. Cents. It's gone up, so right now it's $0.66 cents per share. Definitely not great news in terms of their overall history. And it's an interesting business idea. The company uniquely created a system for sending satellites into space by utilizing a modified Boeing set, I think, uh, 747 jet that drops the rocket from under the aircraft wing 
while in mid-flight. So if you just search that image, it looks really bizarre. And it is different than the traditional method of all these other companies that are sending satellites into space, such as Elon Musk's SpaceX, which has been much more physically successful as well as technologically successful in their innovations, where they just shoot a rocket straight up in the air. This whole, this whole kind of thing reminds me of the car that had the system where you could actually bolt on wings to the car and it would fly. And sometimes it would land successfully. Sometimes. And they didn't catch on, needless to say. Uh, other good business news. Dodge now produces the fastest car on the planet, which is awesome. The 2023 Dodge Challenger SRT Demon 170 has 1,025 horsepower hits 0 to 60 in 1.66 seconds. So it's faster than the Tesla model Plaid and the Bugatti Chiron. It's, and it's a gasoline-guzzling American muscle machine made in Canada, I believe. But And it hits a quarter mile in 8.91 seconds. Disclaimer, they did it on a crawler's track, but it was certified by the National Track Association, or whatever they called. And... It's one of those things where this is a send-off. And this Dodge CEO, Tim uh, Kaninsky's, was behind the the Dodge performance increase. And he was behind the deployment of the original Hellcat and the Demons, which are iterations of the Challenger. Think of them like trim lines, but a lot, a lot more engineering than the traditional company trim increase in line. The Challenger will have a 6.2-liter supercharged Hemi V8, and every part has been altered to add to the Demons extra... 185 horsepower, 171 foot-pound torque. The supercharger actually went from a 2.7 liter to a 3.0 liter or 3 liter. Dodge plans to manufacture 3,000 of the Challenger SRT Demon 170 to the United States market with an additional 300 units for the Canadian market. So the starting price, clever, is $96,666. Dodge Demon makes sense. Production scheduled for June with deliveries to be going into July. And this is one of those great things where the CEO and the Dodge brand, or rather the subsidiary of the parent company, Stellantis, which is European, they wanted to give their customers everything they could for this send-off. Because unfortunately, due to not just internal decisions, but a lot of these automotive companies are killing the V8s because the U.S. government and the EPA, they're having all of these regulations that make it every year. It's a very extraordinarily difficult thing for engineers. Every year, cars need to be more fuel efficient and also they need to be safer. And traditionally, safer means more airbags, more crumple zones, more more material in the vehicle to make it safe, which is good, but when you add weight, it will always decrease fuel economy. And this is why Ford actually changed from making the F-150 series out of steel. They actually changed it to aluminum construction. And every on average, every 100 pounds you could take out of a vehicle, it's about a 1% gain in fuel economy ballparking for internal combustion engine designs historically speaking that's a good rule of thumb so that's why you've seen a lot of those manufacturers switch over to lighter materials unfortunately that does increase cost and so dodge is going to be making an electric challenger and an electric charger there's a, a lot of disgruntled people in the automotive community because historically dodge has been one of the best brands in terms of automotive enthusiasts and making the biggest badass engines you could think of and still making vehicles in a stick shift too, which is even even more incredible. And I mean, the Dodge Viper is iconic, the V10, and 
to see them going electric is kind of sad. A lot of people are debating, she just let the brand die with dignity for the, you know, the Challenger and Charger, or do you want to re, they're planning on reinventing it. So the vehicle lines are going to be fully electric next year. And it really is an end of era, but it is great to see the engineers at Dodge and all of them come together to give the best send off in automotive history that I've ever seen. That is truly an extraordinary feat of mechanical engineering and to have those types of stats from an internal combustion engine is phenomenal. And again, I don't give automotive fiscal advice in terms of investments, but it'll be crazy to see what those cars are worth in a couple of years when many of them are either crashed or they're, you know, they're wrapped around trees, unfortunately, hopefully they're safely. But I mean, it is an end of era for that company, unfortunately. GM did announce they're investing about a little under a billion, I believe, in the V8 to make a new V8 for the company's fleet, but less and less companies are making those big engines, unfortunately. Now, automotive, and this is also on the culture side, Doug DeMero, one of the most famous YouTubers ever, he does a lot of really unique car reviews. He actually agrees with my sentiment saying that Ferrari should make a stick shift again. Now, he noted that the last Ferrari with a stick shift was sold in 2012, and Ferrari made their dual clutch. As soon as they made that, they basically stopped making stick shift. Now, the price of used stick shift Ferraris have skyrocketed in the past couple of years. I mean, one of those iconic Ferraris in history is the F40 and the F50. Those two iconic pieces of Ferrari history, those are both V8 and V, I believe V12 platforms, but they both have stick shifts. And one of the reasons people love that so much is because it's more analog technology. It's more of a traditional, brutal, you know, gritty experience where you don't have the computers thinking for you as much as modern today, where most cars today, it's a super computer on wheels compared to the technology that you used to use. Now, the price of stick shift Ferraris going up more and more. He actually noted that the Ferrari 550 Marinello, the average price for a stick shift is $170,000. And the average Marinello 575, which is similar to it with an automatic, usually sell for 90 to 100K. So it's almost a 2X people are willing to pay for that experience of having a Ferrari with a stick shift. And by the way, Ferrari has one of the best gated shifters in history. And you just, it looks phenomenal and they perform exceptionally as well. Further evidence, the F430 Auto is automatic Ferrari is 126K. Now the F430 with three times the miles, but with a stick shift was sold for $220,000. So it has more miles and it's still sold for basically double. And the last specific example that Doug DeMiro gave was a 2007 Ferrari 599 V12. And those are sticks, and those are selling for about $600,000 to $700,000 for those Ferraris. And in the era of electrification and hybrids, Ferrari is becoming more and more almost like a pseudo Tesla. But if they could actually have a limited run of stick shifts, people would buy them up in a heartbeat. And Doug did also note Ferrari is publicly traded, so they have a obligation to make the most amount of money for their shareholders. And right now, if you want a stick shift sports car, you have one option, if like a, a expensive premium sports car, and that's Porsche. Because Porsche listens to their customers, their customers demand a stick shift, and Porsche realized that they're willing to pay for that. And they've been extraordinarily successful because of that, and the brand and the culture around Porsche has increased exponentially as they are the one of the last options for a true traditional automotive experience. It'll be interesting to see if Ferrari pivots to that. Relatively speaking, it wouldn't 
rudimentary speaking, it wouldn't be that astronomical of an investment to develop a manual gearbox. I wouldn't think for a current Ferrari, you're just swapping out the transmission. Obviously, there's a lot of modifications, but in terms of the ROI, they could charge a couple million a pop and people would buy them, not as an investment probably, but also as just as a fun experience that you haven't been able to get for over a decade. So definitely agree with Doug DeMiro. We need Ferraris to make stick shifts again. Now, going to the politics, Biden issued his first veto as president. The bill that he, be, that he vetoed would reverse the Labor Department rule on ESG investing. The bill would have made it illegal for retirement funds to choose investments based on ESG scores instead of, you know, profits, which if you're a retiree, I reported on this uh, last week, you're on a fixed income, you're usually not working, and you're dependent on those types of investments to make you money, not to be social causes. If you want, there's nothing wrong with that, but set up a different company in a different, more transparent investment fund so people realize I'm making more of a risk to make a social change. I'm putting my money there with the understanding that there is a high probability it won't make money or go down with money with the current technologies. Not saying they won't, not saying you won't have outliers or some will make money, but it is a greater risk to the investor. And if you have a fiduciary responsibility, as some investment managers have legally, that legally means they have to make the decisions that are most profitable for you. Now, the bill actually passed the House by a vote of 50 to 46. And because of that margin, I mean, the, the odds of it actually getting beyond the veto are basically none. In order to overrule the presidential veto, you have to have the House and the Senate both have a two-thirds majority of the votes in order to override that. And right now, because let's be honest, Republicans just epically failed during the midterms. They... Their projections were here, and they ended up going just barely scraping by getting a couple, which there are a myriad of reasons for that, which is fascinating to study, but I mostly blame not having the sharpest candidates, and it'll be interesting to see if they could come back from that. Time shall tell, but unfortunately, it looks like that 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 initiative or that bill will stand, so they're going to continue to make investments not based on what's best for their end users, but what's best for their ideology. Now, Congress also introduced a 32-hour work week, which is called the 32-hour work week act. And my, my eyes, I'm sorry, my eyes hurt. It's actually from rolling so hard. Now, the act, the act was introduced by Democratic Representative Mark Takena from California. It aims to shorten the standard work week from 40 standard hours for non-exempt employees down to 32. They said that, you know, Panasonic did this and that's going great for them. Now, thankfully, the bill would have to the bill would need to pass our House Education and Workforce Committee in order to advance to becoming a law. Republican chair, the Republican chair on the committee, Virginia Fox from North Carolina, said she is not a fan of top-down legislation. So, thankfully, we'll get some pushback there. And I say thankfully just because, as a business owner and also working with many businesses, you get to understand that cost of labor is extremely volatile, extremely. It's one of the biggest costs for a business. And what this would do, if you just think about logically, right now you're paying an employee their standard rate for 40 hours. If you pay overtime, you pay a multiple of that. And there's a lot of other things attached to that situation. That's why when I was growing up, I was extremely frustrated when I used to work for a traditional company. I worked at a movie theater. 
And every week I would ask my manager, hey, I don't want to take lunch breaks. I think they're a waste of time because I just have a granola bar. Like I don't need to sit down for an hour to eat a granola bar in two minutes. So I always thought it was a waste of time, frankly. I'd rather get paid to work harder. Unfortunately, they said there's some type of law preventing me from that or preventing me from having the decision to increase my productivity and work harder. And also, based on the cost of the company, they would not approve anyone's overtime. So if I wanted to work 42 hours a week, there was no way they would approve it. It's never happened at that company. And there were about, I want to say, 30 people on my team. It was uh, rotating uh, cashiers at a movie theater and concessions and what have you. And I would ask around and be like, has anyone ever got overtime approved? And they wouldn't because the business, although they are big on paper, having a massive revenue, the actual profit is pretty slim. And to pay a multiple on someone's labor is exponentially more as, of course, depending on what situation you are, maybe it's one and a half times the rate. And some businesses can not support that. So turning it down to 32 hours, which is ridiculous, that means that the business is going to have to either do two things. One, they have to increase their cost of goods sold to the consumer because their labor is going to go up by that much. Or they're going to hire additional employees and make sure they only work 30 to 32 hours a week at maximum. So that they, but even then, when you hire an employee, you have to pay for it. There's an investment of your time, training materials, then setting them up legally with the, with the human resources. So this would hurt businesses more than anything. It also goes back to, one of my theories that people get generations getting softer and softer and not working as hard. There's certain evidence to that. I mean, my grandfather worked in a, an aluminum foundry seven days a week. He, he, I believe he got holidays off, so maybe he got Christmas off. But he hustled seven days a week in an aluminum foundry over Michigan. And hotter than hell working conditions. You have literally a alu- liquid aluminum flying all over. So you have to have these heavy protective sleeves. He didn't complain about it once. And he was always working more than 40 hours a week to provide for his family. He never complained. He just manned up. He did what he had to do to provide for his, his wife and kids. Never complained about it once. And now you have people crying, and this is more anecdotal evidence, but you have people crying on social media because the coffee, the coffee order is too complicated, which was a trend at a, at a nationwide coffee chain a couple of weeks ago. And to just keep lowering this bar, one of the things that makes America exceptional is used to be our work ethic and innovation. More inve- inventions come to the United States than anywhere else. And you don't get that by only working a couple hours a week. Now, salaried employees are different. Sometimes they work a lot more, a lot less. And of course, personal discipline comes into effect as well. You have some people who they can get the job done in two hours. And based on the market rate of their value, they don't need to worry about having these situations. But Anything like this, I always ask myself, how is it going to affect the businesses? Is it going to help the consumer, help the employees, and help everyone? Or is it going to hinder everyone? And from my perspective, in this instance, I don't see how it's going to help anyone at all. It'll help politicians because they'll make them virtue signal. And they can say, hey, we're fighting for you to get 32-hour work week. But I always tell folks, think of the ripple effect. You throw a stone into a pond, it just doesn't have one effect. There are waves. So this would hurt multiple businesses. And... Frankly, I don't see the upside of it. If you do, maybe throw it in the comments. I'll I try to read all the comments. Eventually, we'll have a comment section maybe in the show. So we'll see how that goes. Now, other business blunders. Now, granted, this is more of a government blunder, perhaps. Now, from the Silicon Valley Bank pseudo bailout, depending on how you define it and where the money comes from, 
you can define if it if it's just a bailout traditionally or it's a pseudo bailout with the funds coming indirectly from the taxpayers with bank fees now nevertheless the fdic is left with 11 billion dollars in toxic loans now specifically the signature bank or sorry this is for uh, signature bank no. the signature bank partial takeover did not include 11 billion dollars in loans the loans were mostly for rent stabilized new york city apartments which are down in value and contain multifamily buildings, which by law restrict the landlord's ability to raise rents. Now, New York Community Bank Corp is buying a little bit more than $32 billion in signatures deposits, as well as 30 of the brand, uh, bank's branch offices, as well as $30 billion in loans. So the only thing they didn't buy were these useless loans. And the chairman of Wayland Global Advisors actually literally called them toxic waste because they basically are if they're profitable the other company would have bought them of course that's how business works now there's also one of those interesting things where a lot of people believe in rent control and if you ever watch that old sitcom i think i believe it's called friends they actually bragged about oh yeah this apartment the price can't go up because it's rent controlled and a lot of people again the ripple effect they think oh yeah if it's locked into that price that's great that means you know it'll help me well perhaps in the short term, but if a, landlord, if a landlord can't increase the cost to keep up with their cost, they're either not going to keep up with the actual investment, aka they're not going to actually maintain the property if every year they're losing money because of inflation, so the value of your dollar is worth less and less and less. It's not the landlord's fault, that's the government's fault, but nevertheless, they have to deal with that ripple effect as well. And all those landlords in those areas, they're incentivized to build other properties, such as commercial properties, because those don't have the rent control built in. So they can make more money, they can invest more and make a higher profit. So to have all these just toxic loans just literally just out there, it'll be, so the FDIC has them. I don't know if that means the taxpayers will directly have to bail it out or what happens to those loans. But nevertheless, that is certainly the business blunder of the day. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. Every subscriber helps. And also don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your enemies, tell anyone. Just stay safe and fight the good fight.